0: It was 20 years ago this week that bombs began to pulverise the Iraqi capital of Baghdad. A so-called Coalition of the Willing, led by the US, Britain and Australia, began what it called a shock and awe campaign to remove Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. Just 44 days later, then-President George W. Bush, you may remember this, dressed in an airman's jumpsuit strode onto the deck of an aircraft carrier to proclaim mission accomplished. Now it's important to note the war did not have the approval of the United Nations and two years later the former US Secretary of State Colin Powell admitted that much of the evidence he had used to try to convince the UN was wrong. So what happened to Iraq and its multi-religious, multi-ethnic population after the invasion? Professor Benjamin Khan of Deakin University is the author of The Legacy of Iraq, from the 2003 war to the Islamic State.
1: The official reason given by the US, the UK, Australia and other coalition partners back in 2003 Was really twofold. They believed they had intelligence that demonstrated that Iraq and the Baathist regime was harboring terrorists. And the second part was that they were also developing weapons of mass destruction. And you have to remember that in the climate of 2003, sort of only 18 months or so after the September 11 attacks on the US in New York and elsewhere. There was a great deal of fear in the international community and particularly in the U.S. about those two things, about terrorist organizations that would get access to weapons of mass destruction. So they were the kind of two central pillars that the case was built on not long after the intervention began in, well, 20 years ago now, in March 2003 it became very quickly obvious that neither of those things were true.
0: So how did the justifications change? They metamorphosised in some way.
1: Yeah, I think at that point the rhetoric had to shift. If there were no weapons of mass destruction and there were no links to terrorist groups, what on earth were we going to do in Iraq? Why were we there and what were we going to achieve? So the goals transformed dramatically. And what we saw was a really big emphasis by all these kind of coalition partners and global leaders towards effectively transforming Iraq into a free, society, into a peaceful society, into a democracy, and into a free market. So this kind of utopian vision that the US and others had, that they were able to topple the Baathist regime and very quickly install this kind of very Western model of government. Mm.
0: Well, how many of those three subsequent justifications, as you say, removing Saddam and bringing peace, um, allegedly cementing democracy, and then making Iraq some free market nirvana, how much of that came to pass?
1: Really, none of it. The one thing that stands out and that any reasonable assessment of the war has to acknowledge is that they were remarkably effective at toppling the Bath state. That happened within sort of six short weeks, By about the 9th of April, I think it is. Uh, the US and coalition partners had conquered Baghdad and the Ba'athist state had effectively come to an end. So, if you purely focus on that as a military objective, they were remarkably effective at it. And it was a demonstration, as was called at the time, a demonstration of shock and awe. The military capacity of the last remaining global superpower to completely annihilate a rival government was on display. Mm. But everything else after that really was a disaster. And if they prepared well for the shock and awe campaign, they abjectly failed to prepare for whatever would come next.
0: And whatever came next is very, very complex because Iraq is a multi-ethnic and multi-faith country. There's no pretense that it was a model of tolerance under Saddam. But what sort of religious tensions did the invasion unleash?
1: That is certainly one of the terrible kind of outgrowths and outcomes of the war is that Iraq had always been home to a broad array, a whole patchwork of different ethnic and religious minorities. It wasn't as if they lived perfectly and peacefully in this wonderful multicultural community under the Ba'athist regime, but for whatever reason, the Ba'ath were able to keep a lid on all of the tensions and rivalries that existed between these different communities. When the Ba'ath were toppled, it wasn't only the highest echelons of the state, like Saddam himself and his closest allies that were removed. In effect, the U.S. undertook an extensive program of debarthification which was problematic on a number of different levels. But primarily it was problematic because it really got rid of the entire police force and got rid of the entire military. And that's why we saw sudden escalations in looting, for example. So you can imagine very quickly that Iraq has a huge security vacuum. There's lawlessness everywhere. The occupation hadn't planned for that and didn't have enough people on the ground to be able to contain it. So who steps into that vacuum? Local militias, local terrorist cells, local actors of all different kinds, many of which were armed and very well trained. Some of them were former Bathists. Some of them were opposed to the Bath. In that security vacuum, you have this unleashing of all of these different actors all of whom weren't trying to work towards an inclusive future Iraq, but instead to peddle their own very narrow and very divisive view that their particular ethnic or religious group should be dominant.
0: Mm. Now, Ben, you are of a Syrian background. You're very familiar with this story. What has been the fate of religious minorities in Iraq after the invasion?
1: Religious and ethnic minorities, as I said, there's a whole patchwork of them across Iraq, and it wasn't as if they were treated wonderfully under the Ba'athist regime. There was all kinds of moments in which the Ba'ath were really brutal dictatorship that cracked down and oppressed many ethnic and religious groups. But after 2003, particularly the smaller minorities, and here we might talk about the various sects of Christians that existed in Iraq and still exist in much smaller numbers today, and other communities like the Yazidis, who grabbed worldwide attention when they were persecuted by the Islamic State in 2014, communities like that, really small religious communities, were too small to be militarily effective in having their own sort of militias and their own sort of being key power brokers in the complex politics that unfolded after 2003. And instead, they were caught in the crossfire. They were routinely persecuted and still routinely persecuted today by a number of different factions. And of course, this also led to a real demographic shift in Iraq because so many of these ethnic and religious minorities, particularly the smaller minorities, have left. And that has really changed the colour of Iraq, the rich mosaic that always represented Iraq and Iraqi identity.
0: It also struck me, reading your piece in the conversation, and we'll put a link to that at our website, that there was an irony here. The United States, its great ogre in the Middle East, had it always been Iran, at least since uh, the hostage siege of 1979, 1980. And yet hasn't Iran in large measure taken over by proxy large parts of the Iraqi body politic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of famous saying that the true winner of the Iraq war was Iran. And it waxes and wanes, their influence in Iraq, and it's complex unto itself. But certainly, all of southern Iraq is really dominated by Shia Arab, and they're pretty much the majority of the population inside Iraq. And they have very close ties, spiritually and religiously and politically, to the Iranian regime. Many of the militias and even several people who are in government in Iraqi politics spent time in Iran under the Ba'ath, regime because they were persecuted by the Ba'ath regime because they were Shiites and wanted to topple the Ba'ath and create a new political order. Many of them have very close ties to Iran. And more recently, when you look at the really broad array of different Shiite militias that emerged, particularly after 2014, to fight against ISIS, many of those were directly loyal to the Iranian regime were directly funded and directly trained by Iran. Mm. Many of those have gone on to be key power brokers in Iraqi politics today. So, yes, Iran has huge influence.
0: This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. I'm speaking with Professor Ben Iskahan. Yeah, Ben, you've been sort of referring to this on and off, but some years ago you wrote. What I thought was a very persuasive book, The Legacy of Iraq from the 2003 war to the Islamic State, just persuade us again of that connection.
1: There really isn't any case that you can make that the emergence of the Islamic State in 2014 isn't intimately connected to the failures of the 2003 intervention. If you go back and look at Iraq, as I said at the beginning, before 2003, there were no active terrorist cells inside Iraq prior to 2003. After the 2003 war and the dramatic Security vacuum that emerged, a number of terrorist cells seized the opportunity to gain a presence in Iraq and to actively fight against the US, and a number of jihadist movements emerged. One of the other big things that happened was the Assad regime, all the way back then, in sort of, well, after 2003 and through the civil war in 2006, 2008, and the sectarian bloodletting, the Assad regime was also enabling many terrorist groups to cross their border and to seek safety in Syria and then fight the war against the U.S. in Iraq. So this was to Syria's benefit because they were accused of being part of the axis of evil. Mm. So to them, to have someone fighting against the U.S. was in their best interests. And of course, that came back to bite the Assad regime after 2011 and the Arab Spring. Because many of those groups had the capacity and the training about how to fight a brutal, asymmetric civil war, and they knew exactly what to do.
0: Yeah, I know you said that there was no active uh, terrorist cells inside Iraq. I'm thinking of the rhetoric coming out of Washington, to some extent Canberra even. Wasn't Iraq itself under Saddam Hussein considered a terrorist cell?
1: That's an interesting question. I I don't know that it meets the definition of a terrorist cell as a nation. Their argument might have been that the Barthas state was a pariah on the global stage and wasn't an actor for peace, and that it was pursuing weapons of mass destruction itself. But the fear at the time was really that also that Saddam was enabling different terrorist cells to gain momentum within Iraq precisely so that it would, you know, help the regime stabilize and and fight against any potential US intervention. But, you know, none of that came to be true.
0: In your piece, you've got some pretty sobering statistics. I mean, you say 186,000 Iraqi civilians died. I've heard figures quoted even in reputable medical journals that could go as high as half a million, but you've played it safe there. But what are the other costs of this war?
1: Firstly, in terms of the numbers, the 186,000 is from the Iraq body count, and that is controversial itself, but I think is a very conservative number. And unfortunately, we don't have you know 100% accurate, reliable numbers of the civilian casualties of the war, but it's certainly at least 186,000 and could be far higher, perhaps, as you say, as much as half a million. The numbers are staggering. The costs in dollars are into the trillions, Um, there's no question there. The costs of any war on this scale can't just be counted through a body count. You have not only the body count of Iraqi civilians, but also, of course, coalition fighters, military personnel. But beyond that, you have the cost of operating a war on such a scale. You have to remember that the Iraq war lasted a bit shy of a decade, eight and a half, nine years the cost of getting people into Iraq and to organising the logistics of running a major military occupation for that long are enormous. But it's also about how those costs play out over the long term. You have, for example, returning military personnel. Many of them have mental health problems. Many of them have post-traumatic stress. Many of them put other kinds of strains on the economy. You have the legacy of in Iraq, it not being a robust economy, that they're not unable to produce as much oil perhaps as they could otherwise, that the infrastructure is failing, that you have poor education system, you have a poor health system, you have poor roads. So the whole situation and the legacy of those costs lasts generations, let alone the trauma, the trauma of that many people, that many civilians dying. Every one of them has family, every one of them has friends and the trauma of children, a whole generation of children growing up in war. I mean, that lasts a lifetime.
0: Just finally, Ben, Australia was a partner in this venture. What now is its ethical obligation to Iraq 20 years on?
1: Australia does have a moral and political obligation to Iraq. When you stage a major military operation like that and go in on these kind of promises of bringing democracy and a free market and a peaceful society you can't kind of turn your back on that society 20 years later and pretend as if that problem no longer exists. We owe the Iraqi people to make good on the promises that we made 20 years ago, and that it's really a responsibility. You know, what do they say? If you go into a store and you break something, well, you've got to fix it. You've bought it. You've got to live with that problem. And it's the same kind of issue. If you go into Iraq and unleash the kind of chaos and destruction that we've seen over the last 20 years, then you have some responsibility for that. And Australia and the Australian government ought to be held to that responsibility and ought to see Iraq as a top priority. And also it's in all of our interest to do so because what we saw with the Islamic State, for example, was the emergence of a really terrible terrorist organisation that not only unleashed mass atrocities inside Iraq, but also really challenged regional security, but also waged... Terrorist attacks right across the world. So it's in our very best interests, if we want to create a democratic and peaceful world, to work with Iraq and and to continue to see it as something that we need to be invested in.
0: Professor Ben Iskahan, he is Professor of International Politics at Deakin University. He's also the author of the book, The Legacy of Iraq From the 2003 War to the Islamic State. Thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.